AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. John, you're going to give us an update on some activity around Apache struts and a recent vulnerability? That's right. So uh, most people are probably familiar with last year there was a pretty notable struts vulnerability that came out um, and there were some pretty large-scale breaches. The Equifax breach was one that um, was a result of the previous struts exploit. Uh, there's a new struts exploit that came out. It's CVE 2018-11776. And last week, uh, there's been some reports in the wild. There's also proof of concept exploits that are out there now for this. So I thought it was important to kind of raise some awareness around this one, because uh, it looks similar in nature to how it operates. So it's an important one for people to be aware of. What it can do, if someone leverages against you, first they have to find that you have struts running on your, which is not necessarily uh, trivial to do. A lot of people use Google to um, find websites that might be using struts, because uh, struts uses the .do and .action extensions yeah. uh, for their web content. So that's, a, that's kind of a trick a lot of people use to find candidate machines that might be vulnerable. Um, but. Uh, uh, once you find one, the proof of concept basically gives you almost like a shell. You know, somebody who uses it against your vulnerable website basically gives them remote code execution, essentially allows them to basically open kind of a pseudo shell or command prompt on your web server so they can pretty much do whatever they want. So once you're logged in, you could do some kind of remote copy of some file from outside. Right, you could do pretty much anything you want, you know pull more files down, malware, install like additional implants. You could laterally move to other things that might be behind um, that server if it's somehow, uh, you know, like in a bastion type of environment. So uh, it's an important one to make sure that you're on top of and you get patched. If you don't patch now, you're going to get compromised. And, uh, and unfortunately, where this software runs, there's probably a lot of uh, good stuff that would be attractive to an attacker. Hey, uh, Mike, did you have some thoughts on this one? Yeah, so I actually read into a little bit of the details of the actual exploit itself. And um, it uses these namespaces to load up the different applications. And if you do not provide a namespace in the URL, it allows you to inject this, um, like you said, this, this uh, object graph navigation language, basically just run arbitrary commands. So you can do things like get shells, uh, cat Etsy password to look for users. Yeah, so basically it's almost like a form of command injection because uh, the software actually supports you know, running arbitrary code. Right, and I think the previous exploit was similar-ish in nature from what I remember seeing. Um, and I can confirm in our honeypot uh, that we run, we have seen a few attempts uh, of this, but not a whole bunch. I wouldn't say it's as much as some of the other things I see in there but there's a small smattering of people attempting to do some of these, uh, just kind of a blind attempt to uh, use this exploit. I did see also that I think one of the proof of concepts uh, you showed in to identify you know, a potentially vulnerable servers. So basically it's like a one click and go, right? Find all the vulnerable servers and try to execute the uh, vulnerability. Right, so Shodan's another good uh, option uh, as well, because that's a, we've talked about Shodan on the show before, it's basically a website that indexes a lot of these, um, uh, basically indexes the internet and tells you what's running on every single port 
and what services are running there. So that's a really wealth of knowledge uh, for finding out what types of uh, software and services are deployed out on the internet. So Apache has released patches for uh, the affected versions, which is in the 2.3 and 2.5 branches of the code. So I'd recommend people, you know, go up there, update as soon as possible, especially since there are active exploits in the wild occurring right now. Hey, Mike, I understand you're looking into a story about uh, the BitFi unhackable cryptocurrency wallet. Uh, maybe not as unhackable as first thought. Uh, what can you tell me about it? Yeah. So BitFi has been in the news a little bit lately. Like you said, it's a hardware uh, cryptocurrency wallet. So you can use it to store your uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum funds. Um, and it's backed partially by John McAfee from the antivirus fame. And there have been some claims that it's, again, unhackable, which is probably the best way to test that claim because you're going to get every security research in the world testing and seeing if that's actually true. To claim that something is unhackable is an invitation to, uh, to the world. In a way, it's like um, getting uh, penetration testing services from people all over the planet, you know? Uh, so of course, again, with this un unhackable claim, uh, a lot of researchers, you know, started to, uh, to try to break into this uh, device. And there were there are many that actually published findings. One, they were able to actually root the device. Um, a couple showed that they were able to retrieve the passphrase and the salt uh, from the memory. Uh, and one, he was even able to root it and install and play Doom <laughs> on the device <laughs> itself. Um, one of the newer uh, attacks that was uh, that was published was actually a cold boot attack. So even when you reboot um, the device and even when it's not on, they were able to use another Android phone with some some kind of software on it. They weren't they weren't going to release um, to plug into this uh, this BitFi wallet and actually extract out the secrets. Uh, you know, from a cold boot. So BitFi did release a statement and said that, you know, they, they've hired a new security manager just investigating all these different claims, and they have removed uh, the unhackable claim, at least temporarily, from their website. It's always embarrassing when somebody proves that your claim is, is not true, uh, but they did definitely get some, some feedback that they're going to use to make their product better. Like you said, uh, claiming to have a completely unhackable product is going to bring everybody to the doorsteps to, say, to prove you wrong. Uh, so they probably got a lot of free security research, uh, you know, as part of that. So, yeah, I think um, protecting cryptocurrency, you know, just has this kind of broad appeal, right? Because you got all the hype around cryptocurrency to start with, and then there were these kind of high-profile cases where people had it stolen, right? Because mm -hmm. it wasn't protected very well. So if you could come up with this unbreakable way to protect it, it sounds like it would be, you know, it would appeal to a lot of people to, to, to buy that solution. Right, and as we know, stealing cryptocurrency has been really hot the past year and a half, two years now. Uh, we talk in the internet weather about the G-ETH wallet. That has a port that it listens on, and there's an older version, if you're running the older version, that has a vulnerability where you can just basically steal the cryptocurrency right out of the wallet if it's exposed to the internet. So um, not, this, you know, not necessarily on par with this. This is more of a physical wallet, uh, so to speak. But uh, cryptocurrency is definitely in the crosshairs of a lot of bad actors now for the purposes of theft, um, because they're untraceable currencies, so it can't be you know, tracked back to you very easily. If you keep really good control of the physical access to your wallet, then that really limits the ability for somebody to compromise it. So if you have really good 
practices about not letting other people handle or access your digital wallet that would be the best insurance to prevent you know, theft of any cryptocurrency from it. So Michael, here you have a new novel attack technique that uses smart light bulbs to steal data. Yes, so uh, there was uh, some security research I thought was interesting. I wanted to get your take and uh, feedback on it. It sounds like it's a little far-fetched to me, but I think it's interesting because it deals with some Internet of Things devices. Uh, the researchers who worked on this were at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Uh, so they were, you know, doing this work intentionally to try to see, you know, what are all the possibilities, starting with a smart light bulb. I guess using some of the infrared frequencies, you can change some things in the light bulb to send basically bits of data. Uh, and if you have some remote observation point that can pick up those changes, you could you know, move data between the two points. The first uh, experiment was to take 100 songs and um, have the light bulbs you know, um, kind of take input from the music and then to try to read that information and guess which song was playing. And they claimed that they were able to hit 51 out of 100 songs. So that was kind of their first little uh, experiment that they did, um, which was interesting. And then they kind of took it up a notch and they, they took a, a, an image and then they tried to just take the bits in the image and through the light bulbs, you know, and through the variation in the light, read that, um, that pattern and then reassemble the image. And then they did it from different distances away. Uh, you know, this is a very researchy thing. I'm not sure practicality wise uh, whether it would get implemented because it would require somebody to really be motivated and set up a lot of extra things. I don't have an application for this. However, there are a lot of people doing research into you know, machines that are air-gapped and how do you get data uh, transferred between air-gapped machines uh, especially in sensitive environments. I suppose there's some really advanced actor who might be able to figure out how to do something like this with light bulbs. Um, but I would suspect that, I don't know. It just seems there might be easier ways. And you're not worried personally being a smart light bulb owner. I am owner. a smart light bulb owner, yes. And if I can tell that which song you're listening to, that's... That doesn't bother that me. That doesn't bother Knock me. yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if you're starting to, like, transmit my bank codes or something, I don't know how you would get that once you're inside my home network. But, uh, you know, there probably are certain things that you could transfer, but I, I got to believe the bandwidth that you're getting there is really small. There's probably a lot of need for error correction. It's not necessarily the most efficient means to transfer data, um, but it's, I guess it's a plausible way depending on what you're trying to send. Um, did you uh, have any thoughts, Mike? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, especially the infrared you know, part is a certainly interesting side channel attack like we've seen before. Uh, what I really liked in the article was a defense, which is to close your curtains. <laughs> <laughs> it's rare that you have mitigation that works so well and is already usually installed in right. the user's home. So right. good point on the curtain. I don't know how practical of an exploit it is, but it's an interesting one, especially when you talk about other ways to move data between devices that are air-gapped from one another. There has been recent um, research as well into using either like ultrasonic or infrasonic sound on I think Android devices to 
like you have a malware implant that's on there to also use that as a means where you can't audibly hear it, but another device nearby could could hear it and you know record whatever that information data transfer is. Right. So that's another kind of similar, in a way, similar technique of you know um, without the user's knowledge or uh, people in the physical area's knowledge that data could be getting transferred between two devices that might be air gapped from each other in some way where they can't talk to each other otherwise. So it's interesting. It's definitely a researchy thing. I'll be interested to see if anybody actually applies this uh, in reality to a real attack. Yes, I agree that you know the attack probably shouldn't unplug your smart bulb or worry about trying to write software or put something in front of it, especially when you have the curtain. But I can see how somebody could take this research and maybe make something useful. The work that they did, the experiments that they did, could lead to maybe some um, other uh, functionality other than just the attack side. There may be some legitimate uses of you know, noticing when things change based on what the light bulbs are up to. All right, Michael, so I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week, and uh, this is the most pro ports. We have Telnet, we have your uh, SMB file server sharing, which a lot of the WannaCry stuff is in here, SSH. So these two, a lot of these IoT devices, right? We know that there's a lot of activity in Telnet and SSH compromising a lot of these IoT devices out on the internet. Microsoft SQL Server, remote desktop protocol. 81 TCP is probably related to the go-ahead web server. Uh, some web traffic, DNS, this might be looking for more DNS uh, servers for use in um, uh, DNS reflection attack activity. Uh, the 8088, I didn't get a chance to look into. Um, it has crept up from where it was in the, below the top 10. I think Matt might have talked about it last week. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it might be a little bit better to focus in on uh, the ones that I think are probably a little bit more related to botnet-related activity. So there's a couple of things in here that I highlighted. We talked about a couple of these already. We're not gonna bring charts up on every single one. 5555 TCP we've talked about quite a bit over the past few months. This is the Android debugger port that gets left open on some of these Android devices. Um, 81 TCP again, go ahead web server. We know there's an active vulnerability against that. We're gonna take a look at these three, 5431, 8080, and 8081. Uh, this one I found more interesting than the others, uh, 5431, we'll take a look at real quickly. This one has really bothered me. I was talking to you this morning about it. This is some activity that's really strange. What happens is about every three to four days, and it's not really consistently regular, because you'll see it's spacing is a little bit different. Sometimes it's tighter, sometimes it's not. There's bigger gaps, and it's really hard to pin any kind of regularity to it, other than it's really bursty, spiky, and then it drops off really quickly, which is not like traditional botnets operate. Normally they'll start and they'll decay, you know, a little bit more gradually. This decay is like, boom, they just stop uh, scanning altogether. So it does, like I said, doesn't conform to our normal botnet scanning patterns, too short of a duration, too fast of a cutoff in my opinion. Um, and to get 70, 80,000 devices to all start scanning like so precisely at the same time is really curious to me. Um, even with like clocks that are probably skewed slightly out of sync and whatnot, it's, it's interesting. Is it possible that you would avoid detection by doing it in this, do it for a while, stop, do it for it's a while? It's not avoiding my detection. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to me, it's even more uh, strange because it's so bursty like that and then disappears. Yeah. 
The other thing that's really kind of interesting to me about this, and it's a little hard for me to represent this perfectly, because uh, the top one is the sc number of scan sources, scanning to port 5431. What I noticed about these flows when I actually looked at them, the source port uh, on those flows is fixed to six. Port it's a low six. port number. That's a very low <laughs> port number. It's very unusual. So they're sending these packets with a fixed source port of six uh, TCP, uh, destination port 5431. So you can kind of see that these line up, these time frames all kind of line up here with where the same spikes occur for this thing. Um, it's just that the volumes are a little bit different because we're measuring out a different thing here versus, you know, number of unique scan sources versus number of flows. The other thing I thought was interesting when I did look at these, um, many, if not all of them, do have 23 TCP Telnet open. However, if you try to connect to it, it immediately hangs up on you with no prompt. Which so, is not unusual Which is behavior. not normal behavior. Right. Um, I have seen that with devices when they're too busy and they have too many connections already to them. They can't handle another Telnet connection, so they just drop you. Um, I don't know that that's the case here, though. So it's, it's curious. I don't have an explanation for this still. I would like to figure out what it is. We're not the only ones seeing it. I know there's some other people out there on the internet that do some of this type of um, telemetry collection, and uh, they're seeing similar types of behavior. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll figure it out. Somehow, there's um, some communication to these 80,000 uh, sources, and they're all doing the same thing at the same time. Very, very, it'll be very interesting to continue to watch this and see what it's all about. Uh, the other one uh, that we had next on the list was port 8080. We've talked about this one as well. This is almost definitely, you can see there's a big uptick here on May 9th. It went from, you know, we had some smattering activity, maybe 5,000 scan sources per hour at peak, uh, but it really dramatically went up to around 30 to 35, and it's kind of been kind of hovering around maybe 15,000 now since, uh, since that May 9th timeframe. This is related to the GPON router. Uh, vulnerability. There's a vulnerability that was announced for this type of router, and uh, it coincides very well with when the announcement was made about that. It's a very easy to exploit uh, vulnerability, so pretty easy for botnet operators to add into their malware to start looking for this vulnerability as well when it does its scanning. And um, there's a bunch of botnets who have actually done that. So uh, this is a report from uh, NetLab 360 back on May 10th. All these botnets they uh, observed have um, instrumented uh, this GPON vulnerability into their exploitation framework. So, so you got to constantly update your uh, your malware if you want your bot army to keep growing. right to keep yeah keep recruiting these additional types of devices that uh, new vulnerabilities are discovered for. And the last one I thought was kind of interesting because I wasn't quite sure. I saw this, and it's been a few weeks since I've done uh, the show. So uh, this is pretty new activity, relatively speaking. On uh, August 20th, uh, we went from a very relatively low number of scan sources scanning for port 8081, which is frequently used as another like alternate web port, maybe for like an administrative console or something like that. And uh, we went from, you know, basically not much, less than 1,000 scan sources per hour, probably not even hundreds, um, up to 12,000, 13,000 now is what we're seeing. So when I looked at what we actually were getting in our honeypots, 
I was able to confirm, oh, I know what this is. So I mentioned here possibly related to HNAP1 exploitation. Uh, HNAP1 is actually an older vulnerability. I want to say maybe it's either a year, maybe even a little longer. It stands for the Home Network Automation Protocol. There's a family of D-Link devices that are vulnerable to this. It basically is kind of a little code injection in the header of the HTTP header when you connect to the device. But when I looked in our honeypot, I saw that, oh, here's somebody. And we actually saw quite a bit of these where they were doing a post to slash HNAP1. And then in the SOAP action field, the header field that they're passing, they pass in a little back tick in the uh, SOAP action, which says to you know do that whatever's in here might be an instruction. And if you have poorly written code, it might actually execute this. Hmm. So apparently some, some firmwares do, and you can see what they're doing. They're basically trying to go fetch some malware and then change it to executable and then run it. And um, I grabbed this. Actually, I scored up these. So I looked at what we were actually seeing in our honeypot. We had 66 uh, in the past like five days. We had 66 attempts with this Izuki.mips trying to be compromised against us. 16 of another one, which is NGYNX. Uh, there's a few other ones, Kinjiro MIPS. The only ones I was able to actually get were the Izuku, Izuku and Kinjiro ones, which I thought were interesting names. Sound very Japanese to me. When I took that sample, they're both actually the same exact sample. Um, ran it through virus total. You get a lot of things in here that look like Mirai, Gafkit, Light Hydra, Bashlight. More so, it looks like there's a lot of Mirai names. So the different vendors, they kind of try to figure out what it is. I see a lot of Mirai-ness there. Uh, so then my next step was, well, let's take a look at what's actually in this piece of malware. So I did really passive static analysis of it where I just looked at the strings inside here. And I, I, I e-grepped it just because I already knew what I was looking for. But you saw this user agent was in the strings output which says Hakai slash 2.0, which is interesting user agent. Um, and then I saw one of the connect strings in here. It has Izuku in parentheses connected, probably says the architecture of the machine, the host name of the machine, some other things where it has the Izuku in there as well. So I Googled Hakai, and I realized that something slipped past my radar that I didn't see in my newsfeed. But I guess it was a few days ago, September 3rd, ZDNet reported new Hakai IoT botnet takes aim at D-Link, Huawei, and Realtek routers. And um, uh, so it's the D-Link router that has this HNAP protocol vulnerability. So they mentioned in here, it's been instrumented to target the D-Link routers that's supporting the HNAP protocol. Um, and then furthermore, the Hakai code base uh, has made its hands in the, into the hands of some other people. And there are a few variants named Kinjiro and Izuku which are the names results, that we, yeah. we saw earlier. So, you know, at least we kind of like kind of close the loop there on what this activity is around and it's about. So we know, um, you know, with some reasonable certainty that it's related to this family of malware because uh, we can see that it's trying to push it to devices. Uh, anyway, um, that's all I really had uh, for this week on the internet weather. Thank you, John. All right, thanks. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.